Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining the Common Ground Alaska show. I'm glad that you're here. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Ben at 40% Ranch, and I'm really excited about this talk. Um, I've gotten to know Ben through this cattle side of his ranch, which has a really neat story, but I know that there's so much more to what he has going on than just cattle. But one thing that caught my attention is how they go about feeding their cattle. They're working super hard to find um, more ways to feed their critters sustainably and right here in Alaska, which I think is, it's such a challenge, but it's so, it's so valuable. Um, they're finding foods that do really well in Alaska that, they're, that their cattle can actually feed on. Um, and they're working towards, they're just one kind of um, spoke in the wheel of um, farmers who are trying so hard to make our food a lot more sustainable here in Alaska. So, but before we get into that, I want to introduce Ben. Ben, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much you. for joining us. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us about your ranch. Uh, well, uh, I'm a new farmer. I've only been farming full-time for, uh, it was two years I've as of February. So I guess 25 months now. Uh, and when I say full-time, I mean full-time, uh, you know, it's 60 to 70 hours in the winter and way more a week in the, in the winter and more than a hundred hours a week in the, you know, from May to October, uh, partly because we're, a lot of that has to do with the fact we're just, we we're carving this place out of raw wilderness. When we started, it was basically impenetrable with all the dead and dying spruce. And so we've been clawing that back and building this farm and ranch here. So we've got 18 acres in Saldatna, um, and what we're trying to do here is uh, do a mixed-use farm. Uh, I was a lawyer for a long time, and I managed to have some financial success at that job, which, thank God, because the farming certainly has sucked a lot of that away. But I've reinvested it. I mean, that's the way I frame it. I'm reinvesting all of that 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 success into the farm because it's, it takes a, an awful lot of money to, to do what I want to do here, just in terms of having a, a mixed-use farm. So we are definitely concentrating on, on cattle. I think the cows are my first love, just because of the, the challenges of learning about them. To go from being you know, a desk jockey to being one of the bigger ranchers in the state with 100, uh, 170 head now, you know, that certainly puts me at one of the bigger ranchers in the state. So in two years, so that you can imagine the learning curve there has been pretty steep. Um, but it's not just the cattle because we're also, we're, we're, we do hogs. You know, last year we raised, I think, 35 feeder hogs and we've got some breeder and hogs. We did 300 meat birds last year. We did turkeys. We've got laying birds. We've got some goats, which are basically pets for the kids. We've got a few ducks, but we're also, um, Finally, this year, we are putting in the, the vegetable garden. We've got a 5,000 square foot market garden that we have um, that we're, we've fenced in and we're doing all the raised beds on. And we've got thousands of plants already started in, in the greenhouse and grow tent, the onions and the peppers. And we're going to be doing a huge variety of vegetables. We've got a 500 square foot greenhouse that's built and is filled to the brim with starts. Um, I've leased a couple of acres here in Saldatna that's uh, to clear off and to do some root crops, which we'll talk more about. And I've leased 450 acres in Point Mackenzie to uh, do hang and to feed my cows on all summer. Um, we're just trying to do a lot of different things. We've, we're, we're starting over a thousand shiitake and oyster mushrooms in, in a few weeks. Um, I've got a big, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got a bunch of apple scions coming. We're going to try to put in a hundred apple tree orchard. So I'm really trying to do a really mixed use food super center here. Um, just as, just to pump out as much food as I possibly can on the farm. So that's what we're doing here. 
I love that. So um, let me back up just a second. What made yep. you, so you, two questions, actually, you can answer them both. What, first of all, what made you decide to go from being an attorney to being a farmer? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty big leap. And second, where did you, where did the name of your farm come from? Well, you know, I think for the first question, if you ask me that question on a July day, you'll get a different answer than when it's 25 below and I'm out betting cattle and just pissed off of what I'm doing. Um, and March is a hard month for me because I think March should be a, a you know, a, a spring month and it's still a winter month. And I personally have a hard time with this time of year because I just cannot wait for the snow to go. Um, but, you know, I, I, I never it's funny because uh, when I was in law school, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I, I, I said that the only reason I ever went to law school was to be a farmer. That was what I always wanted to do. And I was a, a public defender for most of my career. And that job was fine, but it certainly barely paid the bills, let alone allow me to build a big farm. And then I had some, I had some financial success with um, suing uh, big pharma for some of the, the the mistakes they made with people. And as a result of that, those cases, my fee was 40% of what I got. So that's the name of the 40% is kind of an inside joke as to how I paid for everything. So quite frankly, what happened a couple of years ago is that we had some success against Johnson & Johnson. And uh, I suddenly had some money in the bank and the land next to me became available. And... Uh, I was given word that some people from California were going to buy it. And I thought, oh, boy, do I really want neighbors that are going to complain about what I'm doing over here, potentially. So I bought it. And now I had another nine acres. And I thought, well, I always wanted to be a farmer. I guess here we go. And I just <laughs> off we went. Well, and you were off to the races for sure. So the irony is not lost on me that this this money came from maybe someone who came from a business that's supporting kind of the opposite of what you're doing. It came from big pharma uh, and you right. started a farm, which I think that we all know the saying, you know, I support small farms, not big pharma, you know, right. so, um, uh, that's, I love the irony behind that. <laughs> that's part of the reason I did it. I couldn't think of a better way to spend their money than to grow food that is medicine. And I really believe that, you know, I'm almost 50 years old and every, I go to the doctor very rarely, but whenever I do, they always ask me, you know, what medications are you taking? And then they never believe me when I say none, nothing. You know, I don't, I don't want their, their drugs and their medication. Part of that is, you know, I know everyone's different, but part of that is I believe strongly that food is medicine and what you, you are, what you eat. And if you eat McDonald's three times a week and, you know, drink a two liters of soda, you know, you might need to take more medications than if you just don't. So, uh, I mean, that's my own personal worldview about food and about the, the quality of food. And so I, I enjoyed spending their money on sticking it to them a little bit, you bet. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that that kind of lends to the whole idea of know your food, know your, know your farmer, know your food too. Um, and so hearing kind of your passion and your reason behind it is, uh, I think that's super beneficial. Um, so why um i didn't ask i don't i don't i didn't ask this question so i don't know the answer um but are you were you originally from the lower 48 or, or were you from alaska and um that kind of lends to the second question why in the world have a cattle ranch in alaska wouldn't it just be easier to do it in the lower 48 uh well i was originally actually from canada i grew up in the yukon territory in british columbia and so um i'm not from the lower 48 and the answer is absolutely and again 
ask me that question in December. I mean, everyone thinks I'm insane and so do I. Um, it would have been a lot easier. And, I, and I'm certainly, I, to be honest with you, I was a little bit naive when I went into it about some of the challenges. There's no question about that. Um, it doesn't help that we got more snow this year than in, you know, almost any time in the last hundred years. That definitely has not helped my mood um, in that regard. But yeah, it, it, it is. But, but look, it, 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 to me, what, what really blows my mind and what really bothers me is, is that we live in the biggest state in the union. We've got millions of acres of land that's suitable for agriculture. And yet we import 95 to 97 percent of our food. And that, to me, just staggers the imagination because I can understand why we're importing coffee or oranges or avocados, but I can't for the life of me understand why we're importing beef or chicken or potatoes or wheat or, you know, carrots or lettuce or, you know, all of these other things, eggs and all these other things. And I understand it has to do with costs and economies and scale of and all of that sort of thing. But the way I partly looked at it is, is that if people don't step up and take the risk and do the work, we're never going to improve that ever. Yeah. And so I had a little bit of financial success. And quite frankly, between you and me, I would rather spend it on the farm than give it to the IRS. I mean, being a farmer is a great tax deduction. And uh, it, it's true. I mean, especially when you start from scratch, you've got a lot, you know, you there's the cost of building this place has been ridiculous. And I'm trying to run it as a business, it's not a hobby. So if I have a choice between giving the IRS money and buying cattle, I'm going to buy cattle. Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so. So that that's definitely part of it. But would it be easier? Oh, you bet. And whenever I see the videos down on Facebook or whatever of you know fifty dollar round bales and all these clean cattle and calves being born on green grass at this time of the year, I want to reach through the computer and just choke people. And I'm not saying that's always the case because I know ranchers in the you know down in lower forty have lots of challenges too with drought and all that. I'm not saying their job is perfectly easy and mine's difficult. But there's no question on earth that. Ranching in Alaska is is a big challenge. Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. And I agree with what you said. I think we all kind of feel that pull as the weather gets nicer, as we, you know, you go outside and there's warmth in the sun, you just automatically feel that that need to do something. And as you know, we're, we're more, we're not, we're farmers, not ranchers. And so, um, you know, there's no digging in the dirt. There's no, there's no preparing, there's no building garden beds. There's, there's only so much you can do in any of the greenhouses. So so I understand you kind of get that itch in March and it's hard because we, we feel like we're ready to just kind of hit it hard and fast. And yet we're still just standing still for six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. For another month and a half. Yeah. It's it's terrible after a winter of of waiting, it's, it's, it's not good. It's yeah. not good. For, I mean, it's not good for me emotionally. Cause I just, I can't stand this time of the year because all I want to do is get, get outside start clearing trees, start building, start being working. I got a list of things to do on the farm this year that would blow your mind. And I can't do any of them because I literally have five feet of snow. Yeah, it's oh. so true, but we do muddle through and when the snow, when breakup is over and the ground firms up, Oh my goodness. Then we, then we do hit it hard and it's, it's a good thing. Um, okay. So I want to know, I'm super curious what the first time I ever really, um, heard about your farm, you, I think that you made a post about, did you grow, did you hire someone to grow some beets and stuff for you up in Palmer? Was that you or, um, that was me. me Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, and so then Gina and I started talking about different ways to feed our, you know, cause we'd like to get cows, but we have a very small 
we only have 10 acres um, to, you know, to do everything we want to do on, which it's not much when you, when you want to grow on the scale that we're growing. Um, so, um, so obviously we're not growing. Well, you, could, you, could do, you, could, you could do cows on 10 acres. Well, we have uh, five of it is orchard fenced orchard for our you pick farm. But, um, and then, you know, there's the house acreage, it, it just kind of everything. But when we, when I was hearing about you talking about growing, if we don't have enough acreage to grow hay to support cows. Mm -hmm. So, um, so then when you were talking about other crops, it really got me curious. So, so tell me a little bit about number one, what brought that about and, and how's it working and what were you growing? I, I want to kind of dig into that for a minute. Oh, well, it's it's really important to understand that uh, right now I have 59 cattle here. I've got calves coming and I have cattle coming from all over the place. So by the end of the summer, I'll be over a hundred and, you know, 170 head or so. I don't have a single, I'm not trying to feed them a single blade of grass from my property. Um, I've only, you know, they're on maybe five or eight acres that it's fenced in. I'm a basically what I consider myself as, as a humane feedlot. In the summertime, my cows go off to pasture, 250 acres, and get to be real cows. But for, you know, eight months of the year, they're here with me feeding them nothing. I could never sustain that number of cows on five acres, maybe one or two, right? So the biggest, other than taxes and insurance, which is a topic for another day as to how uh, property tax needs to be changed in this state because it's ridiculous for farmers. But don't even get me started on that because it's so unfair. But um is is feed is obviously my biggest expense so one of the big advantages to being a new farmer is i didn't know anything it's also a disadvantage but i considered it a huge advantage because i wasn't trapped into this gee my granddaddy did it this way and so i got to do it this way and especially being a lawyer research was something that was just you know second nature to me so i started thinking from day one how do i feed these cows and i think there's this misconception uh, among a lot of people that cows have to eat just hay or grass. And that's absolutely not true. And so, for example, they've done a lot of studies in, in Idaho and in Prince Edward Island, a Canadian province where they grow a lot of potatoes. Cows can eat up to 50% of their diet in potatoes and do just well and do just great. And what happens to grow really, 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 really well in Alaska? Potatoes, right? And they're cheap. And you can, you can, and cows are, you know, and especially here because in the wintertime, cows need extra carbs to stay warm. What are, what are potatoes? They're full of carbs, right? So um, I started thinking about how, how to reduce those costs of, of the hay. And especially because hay, especially in South Central Alaska, is such an unstable commodity. You know, it's, it's, I it was funny. I was reading a, 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 a paper about food security that was dated 2003 or 2004, something like that from Alaska. And it talked about even way back then about the perpetual hay shortage in Alaska. And it was a 20 year old, you know, and it, it there's these ups and down years where hay gets ridiculous and then it's unavailable. And one year there's not enough snow cover. So there's no groundwater and then there's no hay. And then we have a drought and then there's too much rain. And, you know, it's so, so all of that got me thinking, how do I feed this number of cows when, without having to buy as much hay, but also, also, much uh, just as important to me is how do I keep those farming dollars in state? That's a very important issue for me. I, I support four different farmers right now. I have four farmers that work either exclusively for me or give me a huge percentage of what they grow because 170 cows, by the way, eating 30 pounds a day times 365, my cows consume almost 2 million pounds of feed a year. Wow. So, and, I'm, and I try to buy all of that in state, 
all of it. It's either the grass that's on pasture or all of it in state. So I could buy corn, for example, from outside, but rather than do corn, when I researched um, corn, I learned that that cows can do almost as well on beets as they do on corn, but beets aren't GMO. I can buy them in state. I can support a local Alaska farmer. I can have some say over quality control and I can produce, in my opinion, what's a superior product. Because part of what I'm shooting for as well is, is that I believe after researching it, when you finish a, a cow or a beef on just grain, grain is just dry matter, right? So you're putting all that dry matter into a, a beef and yeah, you're going to get marbling and you're going to get all of that. But when I finish my cows, they're getting a lot of potatoes, a lot of carrots, a lot of beets. And what are all those? Those things are a lot of water, right? Which on the one hand is not that great in the sense that it's water. But on the other hand, what you're doing, what I'm doing is constantly hydrating those cattle. So what does that do to the meat? In my opinion, it makes it way juicier, way more tender because every day they're eating all those vegetables and getting, and they're constantly just, you know, that was one of the first thing Graham Oak said to me when he came and killed some cows for me last year, within 30 seconds, Graham said, wow, look at how hydrated these cows are, you know? So, um, I was just trying to think of all those different ways of how do I keep my farming dollars in state? How do I support my local farmers? How do I reduce my dependence on hay? How do I produce a superior product? And so I came up with the idea. Well, I, you know, I learned from other people, but I don't mean I came up with it, but I, I came up with my idea of getting the vegetables. And then I was lucky enough to hook up with uh, Garnet Canop at Three Ladybugs Farm who's just awesome. I mean, just awesome. I mean, he's, he has saved me for two winters now. I mean, I cannot say enough about him, but the first winter he gave me a bunch of his cull potatoes and usually he would just dump them out. He's feeding the moose with them. So I started getting them um, because they're, you know, they're culls. They're not suitable necessarily for human consumption, but cows don't care. And the cows did so well on them. And I had a hundred percent calf survival rate and my cows came through the winter just looking fat and happy and healthy and, and, and so last year I said, Hey dude, can you do more for me? Can you grow beets for me? And he said, sure. I've never grown beets like that before, but he dedicated five acres of his farm and he grew me a bunch of beets and he grew and increased his production of potatoes for me. And I got a bunch of carrots out of him. And now this year he's planting 200,000 sugar beets for me to, for my cattle. And I'm going to go over in the spring and help him clear 11 more acres. And so he can really get the smoke coming out of the stacks on his farm. Uh, to provide all of that to me as well. And it's, it's good for him and it's good for me because he takes the very best produce from that land and sells it for human consumption. And then I get what's left over to feed the cows. And if it's got a little, you know, mold on it or a little, uh, you know, not really mold, but, you know, little spots or it's got a worm damage or, you know, whatever, you know, you know how picky people, consumers can be in terms of their, their food, but anything that's not grade A kind of human quality, gets turned into cattle feed and the cows love it. He loves it. I love it. The eaters of the beef and pork love it. The chicken, my chickens love it. I mean, my soil loves it. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's a win, 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 win for everybody. So that's kind of a long winded way of, of telling you how I got there, but um, that's, that's what I decided to do. And so far it's, it's, it's working out pretty well. It's a lot more work though. A lot more work. It so. is a lot more work. Gene and I have talked, um, my husband and I talk often about, um, you know, when we're making a decision, do we go this route or do we go this route? And it's like, well, this route is going to be more work, but it's less money. And, you know, you're always trading your time for dollars in some regard. And do we want to, I mean, I, um, you know, we could, we could 
work outside the home, you know, we can be, we can go outside the home and work and pay for importing hay, say, or we can find a way to grow beets on our property and feed our animals and hopefully save on that feed bill. Um, because that when you're getting started, you don't, you know, when you don't have the income coming in from that. Um, so I just, I love, I love so many things about what you said, mostly because, um, you didn't know what you didn't already have stuck in your head, what wouldn't work. So you thought outside the box about what would work. And I love also that you are, this is a truly Alaska grown product. So it's not just that the cow stands on Alaska soil and is raised as a baby up, but it's raised on corn from the lower 48, but he's actually being raised food that's made here in Alaska. And that just creates this beautiful, um, this beautiful cycle of sustainability that, um, that that's the, that's kind of the vision that that I think is growing across the state for sure. And then the the community building too. You have someone growing your beets for you, so you're supporting their farm. And um and as you know, there's only so much time. You can only do so much on your own. So there are just simply things that have to be outsourced, but when you can outsource them within the state, then that keeps those dollars in the state and that strengthens our economy. So mm-hmm. uh, So I just, I appreciated the whole story. I think it's a great story. Um, So um, I want to, I want to switch gears really quick because I want to talk about a post that you made on Alaska Farm and Food that really caught my attention. And this is specifically geared to people who are wanting to buy um, beef Beef. in the fall. Uh, who um, maybe have never done this before. They've never bought like a half a cow or a whole cow um, because there there are a lot of questions. It, it's much more commonplace in the lower 48 than it is up here. So, um, so there's, there's, there's not many of us crazy enough to ranch up here. There's just hardly any farmers or ranchers. I mean, really, you know, they, they say that according to the USDA, and I don't know how accurate this can be, but there's apparently... You know, if you exclude the Bering Pacific Ranch, that huge ranch out in the Aleutians, there's apparently only about 7,000 cattle in this whole state. You know, my joke is there's more cattle wandering around lost in Walmart parking lots in Texas there are in Alaska. I mean, literally, I mean, Texas has something like 30 million beef animals or something. We have 7,000 total cows here. Total. So that's an interesting, that's for another day, but that's interesting to think 7,000 cows if a family typically goes through a half a beef in a year, that's only 14,000 families that can be fed. Of course we have moose, you know, we have, we have, um, we have subsistence, you know, too, which is helpful, but, um, okay. So I'm going to, I'm just going to read the intro to your post and then I'm, you made a bunch of bullet points and we're just going to take these bullet points one by one, because I think it's really, really important for people to fully understand what they're getting if they're going to buy a beef, because we just, there are so many misconceptions and there's confusion. And if you don't go into it aware, you may not quite get what you think you're getting. So and before uh, before before you do that, before you sure. do that, let me let me let me just preface, let me just preface one thing I didn't put on the post that I think is really important for people to understand is that one of the big misconceptions sometimes people have is they think that, oh, if I'm buying in bulk, if I'm buying directly from the farmer, I'm gonna save a bunch of money on a beef. And, you know, if I'm buying a whole cow from you, it's got to be, you know, it's going to be $3 a pound or something. And I didn't address that at all in, in, in my post there, but I think you need to take that thought and flush it out down the toilet. And what you need to be thinking about is, hey, 
what is the best quality food that I can sustain myself with, even though it may be just as expensive as the supermarket or maybe even a little bit more because it doesn't what Americans don't realize is that a lot of American beef is sent over to Korea, China, Japan, that some of those Asian countries love American beef. So what Americans do in, in response to that is we import billions, billions with a B pounds of beef from Brazil every year. And a lot of that, you know, think about those animals, even the meat, it's been frozen or refrozen or whatever, you know, I'm not going to go into that whole subsection right now, but just be aware that what you're really paying for, if you come to my ranch, you, you get to see, or any, any ranch in Alaska, what you're paying for is the ability to actually see what you're getting. I mean, how is the animal living? How is it raised? How is it eaten? Who is your farmer and the quality of it? And it shouldn't really necessarily be a money-saving exercise. So I just wanted to preface these questions with that because that's a mindset that needs to just not exist if you're thinking about buying a beef. Just It's not going to happen. You're not going to save money. You're going to get food that's a billion trillion times better, but it's not going to be cheaper. So. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, that there's truth to that. I have just a tiny bit of pushback only because again, this is the whole purpose of this is informing the consumer. Um, we grew, we haven't done, we hadn't done, grown our own protein in several years and we've kind of started it back up um, last year. And one of the things that I noticed was um, with our chicken that when I, when I cook my chicken, there isn't I, I can make crispy fried chicken like my granny used to make. And I hadn't been able to make crispy fried chicken in a long time because every time you try to fry a chicken, your pan fills with this water stuff. Um, and, you you know, you're trying to constantly pour that out. It's like water and grease. And and I we'd done it for long enough that I started thinking it was normal. And I started thinking it was me. Why can't I make granny's crispy fried chicken? Why is my fried chicken soggy? What is going on? Um, and so, you know, there I try alternate ways to make my granny's fried chicken when in reality the problem wasn't me the problem was the chicken and so the when you get chicken from the store it's injected with I, they say I forget the percentage a bunch of water and and who knows what else I'm not I don't want to throw out accusations that there's a bunch of stuff in there but but it's not like our chickens that we grow that um yeah there's some juice in there but it's it's just it's completely different and then um the other thing is i've noticed two things with we buy beef from uh fred smith up in um uh he's out of delta and right. i don't when i get a steak from fred i don't have this need to eat this massive steak because his steak is so good i mean i could it would be yummy but it's it's so much more satisfying that um, I find we're eating a little less. Plus a pound of his ground beef goes further, whether I'm making spaghetti or hamburgers, because again, I'm not getting a bunch of stuff in my pan that I'm pouring off. Um, and I don't, I don't understand. I don't know all of butchering. I, I, I really don't know that whole world, but I know that the product that I'm getting as I'm, as I'm, buying a much more higher quality it really isn't more expensive in the end and and oh. we live on a very small income so i it's not i'm not just saying that because i you know we have money to blow on it it's not it at all it's it's truly truly a better product and and it does stretch a whole lot farther i'd never considered that aspect uh at all so maybe it isn't more expensive i look at it just from the 
you know, maybe on the ranching side, the price per pound hanging weight and what your yields are and things, and it might be slightly more expensive, but obviously it is a way better product. I mean, that's, it's not even a question, you know, and, and, and with, with, with chicken, pork, and beef. My, my, I'm particularly proud of my pork, by the way, because as, as good as my beef is, the, uh, at least with beef animals in the United States, um, a lot of them get to start their life on pasture and then they finished in a feedlot. But one of the main reasons I didn't discuss with you earlier when I just, when you asked why I did this is, is because I care so, so deeply about animal welfare, which is a weird thing to say for someone that raises animal for feed. But when you look at those hog confinement barns in particular and the way they raise those chickens and those hogs, it's foul. It, first of all, humans are, I mean, that's just foul. It should never, it shouldn't be allowed in my opinion to disgust me, but to eat those animals and then to think you're going to have a healthy productive life when you're eating something that's just that sick and, and miserable, you can't do it. And you look at my pigs in particular and the way that they're raised and the joy that they bring me because they run around and they get to be hogs and, you know, have wallows and chase cows and, you know, have a mud bath and, and root around in cow manure and do the things that, cow, that pigs are supposed to do. It, it's not even the same product. I mean, go get a, you know, a piece, something from a hog confinement barn in, a barn in one of my pork chops and tell me that's even the same meat. It's a different color. It smells different. It tastes better, you know, and just briefly, you know, it's funny because my kids kind of push back on the on the farm a little bit. They're not real keen on being farm kids or living in Alaska or whatever, you know, they're teenagers, teenage girls. But after we did this last batch of hog, even my kids were like, dad, this is the best hog you've ever grown. So to get a compliment from them, I mean, that's like the Holy grail, right? That's right. So, that's right. so it is definitely about it's it, all of that. Again, is just a way of saying it's definitely about quality and it's not just about the quality of the meat you're getting. It's also about, I like to think that by being a rancher, I'm reducing the amount of cruelty in this world by just a tiny bit because my animals live a life that to the every extent possible, they have a life that's free of pain and stress and distress and they have an instant death. And I don't, I refuse people ask me all the time to, 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 to buy my meat for supermarkets or restaurants and things. And I refuse to do it. There's, I understand that has to be done. I get it. But for me, the idea of trucking my animals off to be killed somewhere else by someone that doesn't care about them, I, I I'd rather go bankrupt than do that. I, I believe that they, if they were born here, they're going to live here. They're going to die here. No pain, no stress, not being loaded into a trailer and taken off to someplace else. No, no, I'm not doing any of that. And so all of that goes into the quality of the meat, but it also much more importantly, or as importantly for me, goes into the quality of that animal's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that says a lot for it and not to continue to derail, but this is all such important information <laughs> that we all need to learn. Um, I just was reading a study yesterday that talked about, um, and this is, I, I realize this is, this is vegetables, not meat, but I, I think that the, 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 um, the basics stand true. I'd be curious to see. So they were talking about vegetables that were just grown in um, just normal um, dirt, basically, um, and just <coughs> ultra um, fertilized just to keep the dirt going. Um, that was one side. And on the other side, they had all they did. The only change that they made was they added some compost and some kind of organic matter and living matter to the soil. So there, it's not even like this was like a massively regenerative, um, you know, living culture type soil, but it was a healthier soil that they grew. It, it was carrots that the study was done in. And I, I don't remember the exact, I should have brought it, but I don't remember the exact, um, numbers, but the stuff that was grown in the, in the dirt, essentially 
um, had almost none of the minerals that you, that, that, that the carrots are known to have in them. Um, whereas the, the carrots that were grown in this, um, attempt at creating soil, you know, because we're all, we all have to start somewhere. They were already starting to read, to regenerate and, and have these, um, these, these minerals in them that naturally occur in carrots when they're grown in a decent soil where they can take in these minerals. And I wonder if meat isn't the same as far as a nutrient level, you know, you, you can't in my, this is my own layman terms. Again, I'm not a rancher, but I've always said you can't eat a sick animal and expect to stay healthy. <laughs> that doesn't make no, any sense. Not. So, and, and it's the same with vegetables or anything. So there's also that, that, that idea that we, we need to be putting food in our mouths, even if we have to eat, a, you know, we don't have to consume massive, you know, supersized portions. Um, but we're, the nutrient value is so much more intense in it that, you know, it, it's just, it's so much better. Right. I agree. And I, and I, I think my, my beef and pork are probably filled to the brim with nutrients, par- partly because of how they feed them, because they're rather just getting hay, for example, which, you know, everyone does their own thing, but my, 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 my animals, you know, they're going to get some hay. They're going to get some barley grown at Delta junction. They're going to get some potatoes. They're going to get some beets. They're going to get some carrots, you know, so there's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if I'm missing some nutrients on one part of it, they get it from something else. And I, gen- and I do that purposely because I want them to have that varied diet. Cause I think it makes for, for healthier animals, but also and help happier animals, but also because I want to make sure that they're just that beef and beef done right is one of the most nutri- nutrient dense foods on the planet. It really is a superfood. Go look that up. I mean, just look at what, what is packed into beef. I mean, it's awesome when it's done right. So yeah. on that note, we better get to this list and we'll be here all morning. John. All right. All right. Okay. So I'm going to read how you introduce this. So you said sure. over the next few months, I expect ranchers and farmers to start, to start taking orders for fall meat for fall meat. I found myself on the phone a lot with people last year with the same questions. So I thought a beef buying primer might be helpful, which is brilliant. Um, If you're considering buying a whole half or quarter beef this year from an Alaskan rancher, here are some helpful pointers. These basic points are mostly true for pork, just the numbers are different. Okay, so we're going to go through these points. Number one, beef is usually sold by hanging weight. That means killed, cleaned, and usually cut into quarters. That is the weight you pay for. So, so you're saying we're paying the hanging weight. Um, you're not paying. What are you not paying for in it? And and what are you actually getting with it? Well, I have to pay to grow the whole animal, but um, the the consumer gets a you know I consider it a deal there because what we what you're not paying for uh, uh, is the head, the hide, the feet, or any of the guts or the internals. So. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it varies a little bit, but a very rough guide. Cause I don't want any fellow ranchers, you know, jumping down my throat saying it's actually 62%, but it's about 65%. So if you have a thousand pound steer in the field, by the time it comes to you and we remove all those other things, it's going to be about 650 pounds. So 350 pounds that I had to pay to grow by the way. Um, and you know, as comes right off the top, um, that animal then is usually cut in half and into quarters. And then that's what you take to the butcher. And one thing I didn't put in the post that's important to understand is if you have that 650 pound carcass, that does not mean you're going to get 650 pounds of meat, right? Because you're going to take it to the butcher. They're going to take out bones. They're going to take out um, some trim, no matter 
what animal it is, there's going to be some trim that turns into dog food because maybe some hair touched it or, you know, it's bloodshot or whatever. It's the same when you're hunting moose or whatever. There's going to be some waste and trim. Um, and so again, it's a roughly about 650 uh, or 65% of that again. So what a thousand pound steer boils down to about 400 pounds of wrap meat in your freezer is what you end up with. Um, of course of that extra 200 pounds or whatever of trim, that's not all waste. Cause of course you're going to have lovely soup bones. You're going to have some dog food, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so it's not waste waste, but it's not your, you know, your, your cut and wrap prime meat. So that's what you pay for if you're buying a beef. It's really important to understand that hanging weight because that's, you know, this year I'm going to be nine bucks a pound hanging weight, which is a crazy amount of money. But even that's hopefully enough to break even this year. I lost money last year on beef, a lot of money. This year I'm hoping to break even at nine bucks a pound. So, you know, that thousand pound steer, if it was if it was live weight, it would be nine thousand dollars. But right off the top, it comes down to say about fifty four hundred. Um, and then then that's what you're left with. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Okay. So, but that takes us to the next one. It says technically the, the point number two, technically you're buying the live animal. That means assuming you buy a whole that you're entitled to all the bones, tail, organs, hide, tongue, whatever you want out of that, the liver, sure. um, all of anything that you want in there. This anything. is a big sticking point because I, um, I know that there are people, I just, I recently saw um, where someone said, they ordered a beef and they didn't get the bones um, and they wanted the bones. And they said, oh, we don't we don't give the bones to the consumer. And her sticking point was, but I paid for those bones. Those are my bones. Um, right. What are you going to do? You can't go pull bones out of the garbage. You're kind of stuck. But um, but make sure like as you're in and not when it's all said and done and you pick up your beef, but when you're going into it, that you are getting that you have, you know, I don't, everyone's system is different, but that you have expressed that you want the bones, you want the liver, you want the tongue, whatever well, it is. Back, back, back up, back up one, one section though, because okay. there's, okay. there's, there's, there's two things there that there's two different stages there. If you, you can't wait to the butcher to tell that you want the, the tongue and stuff. Okay. At the time of slaughter, I always ask, okay, because at the time of slaughter, when the animals actually getting shot and cleaned, that's when you got to come to me. And when you pick up the beef, you got to make sure you get your tongue, your tail, your liver, your, your heart, your kidneys, because the butcher never sees that stuff because you're going to take that stuff in a bag or in a cooler. Uh, and then you're going to add along with your, your, your carcass down to the butcher and you get to take, you know, your, your inside flap steak or, you know, whatever with you. Um, and then when you go to the butcher, the butcher is going to have a cut list for you. And there that's when you get to tell them, hey, you want the bones. But it's really, really important to tell the rancher that, hey, you want the internals um, and you want the tail and that sort of stuff. Because that happened to me last time a couple of times where people showed up and they didn't tell me. And then you know, a couple of days later, they said, oh, where's my heart? Yeah. Well, the dogs have got it. I mean, what do you mean, where's your heart? You can't days later tell me it's too late. So I always ask the question now, do you want any of those things? And to make sure to mark it on my sheet as we're butchering. But it's also true that when you're doing, you know, 50 beef this year, like I'm going to be doing, and there's trucks coming and going, and it's a madhouse here and gunshots and, you know, uh, you know, crazy, it can get kind of get lost. So it's really important to communicate that really well with your farmer, or your rancher, that you want those things. At okay. least it is. For me. So Perfect. Yeah. And you can do research ahead of time. Like, um, like if you want the liver, if you want the heart, look at what there is that's usable, because honestly, that's new to some people if they haven't, you know, always been butchering moose or whatever. Um, 
So it's something to think about. Okay, point number three, usually but not always, the rancher does not do the processing. This usually means the processing has to be arranged. Make sure when you buy a beef to understand how this will occur. The processing fee is a separate cost on top of the beef. And for you, where you are, you said it's under a dollar a pound, but I saw on that post that here in the Valley, it's a lot more. So right. I guess the moral of that story is find out, you know, where, find out from the butcher what your cost per pound is going to be. So you're not shocked that yet there's another cost for your animal um, right. and that's the cut and wrap. You get to dictate what cuts you want within reason. The entire animal cannot be ribeyes. <laughs> um, what percentage of fat you want in your burger and that sort of thing. Um, right. Yeah. That kind of stands alone, but was there anything else that you wanted to, um, anything you wanted to add to that? No, it's just, you know, you're going to have, you're going to have three fees that come when you buy a beef. You're going to have to pay Graham Oaks usually um, to, to kill it and clean it because it's an awful lot of work. And then you pay me and then you pay the processor. And, you know, the processor I learned is around, my butcher here was 85 cents a pound last year. Apparently they're a dollar or something, a little bit more in the Valley, but just be aware of that. The, the upside to that, by the way, is, is that you, you get to have control over your, your cuts and how they're packaged. You know, for example, I sold a beef just a couple of days ago to somebody, but he's a single guy and he says, listen, I want my steaks individually wrapped. I don't want four steaks in a package. So that's what he gets because that's what he's paying for. So just be aware of that, that that's an extra cost, but it gives you a certain amount of control over how your meat looks and how it's cut up and you'll be fine. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. So that kind of covers the next number four. It's that just to know the actual cost. Um, so number five says not all beef is the same. This year you may see prices between, between $6 a pound hanging weight and $10. This variation will be dictated by several factors. First, how is your beef finished? If you prefer grass finished, for example, you should expect a lower price. Most consumers in my experience are used to and prefer a finished beef, however. Uh, finishing beef takes money and you should expect to see a higher price. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's funny because you know grass fed they call it grass fed which is a misnomer because of course all cows are mis or grass fed but really it's more properly called grass finished but you know it's got the it's got the uh, the stigma so to speak of being the healthier better product and a lot of times it's more expensive you go to a you know Whole Foods in California for example and buy grass fed beef it's going to cost a fortune right but for me. Just being completely honest with the consumer as an Alaskan rancher, maybe it's different in the States, I don't know. But if my cows are on pasture all summer, and then I say late August, early September can harvest some of those beef and sell them, how is that not going to be cheaper than if I have to truck it to my here and then spend hours of my life grinding, because I can't feed them whole, by the way, grinding beets, potatoes, and carrots, and mixing grain, and loading them into a, a tractor and feeding them and doing that for two months and cleaning up their manure and making sure those animals are healthy and happy, that's going to add cost to the beef. So in my opinion, grass-finished beef in Alaska should be cheaper. And I think I think it is a little bit cheaper. Um, and I don't know what everyone else is going to charge this year. As I said, I'm going to charge nine bucks a pound, which is... Uh, you know, it's a fair amount of money for beef, but that's for the finished beef because I have to pay for those 200,000 sugar beets and I'm going to buy tons of grain from, from John Robinson and Delta Junction and do all the things we talked about earlier and keeping those farm dollars in state to pack those calories into 
my my beef animals so that at the end of the day they've got some juice they've got some sizzle they got some fat they got some marbling and they the customer gets a really superior product so just be aware of of, of what you're getting because uh, that last year i was really frustrated people would say oh i can buy beef for six dollars a pound oh and when i was 750 okay well what is that beef oh it's just grass finished well that's not the same thing you know that's an animal that's been on pasture all summer and of course it's cheaper than mine because they're not getting a thousand or fifteen hundred pounds of of vegetables and grain given to them over a period of months. So right. it just depends what you like. There's no right or wrong answer. I'm not trying to sound like you know one is better than the other or any of those things. I, I don't mean that at all. I just mean if if you are don't you can't expect to get a, a completely finished animal in the way maybe you're accustomed for if it's grain or if it's grass finished and get the lower price because it, it's it's they're just not the same animal. It's that's true. all. And I think it's important to just distinguish super quick. Um, You can just, it's simple to look in on Google, but uh, like grass-fed hamburger is going to fry up different than a, um, a, I guess, finished or whatever hamburger. Um, So so you just, you just want to know the difference because you don't want to buy, you sure don't want to buy a whole beef or half a beef and think you've got food in your freezer for your family and then realize it's, you know, with grass fed, it tends to not have the marbling as much as something that's been finished. So um, not, it's not bad. Like you said, there's no, and you can probably go, um, you can probably explain that better, but it's not that it's bad. It's just that it's different and you want to know what you're mm-hmm. buying. So you're happy with your product. Yeah. If you come to my ranch and, you know, pay me $5,000 for a big fat juicy steer, and then you leave and you're not happy with it, you know, uh, because it was grass finished, it's got a different flavor profile. It's just not what p- people I think often ask for grass finished. And I usually talk people out of it, to be honest, because they think they say, oh, I want a grass fed beef because, you know, they've read that it's better for you or the balance between omega sixes and omega threes is better or whatever. But then they smell it or they taste it and go, what is this? You know, so that's not the consumer experience that I want. Yeah. Um, but you know, just just know what you want. If On the other hand, if you've used to eating grass finished beef and you like it and you want it i can happily sell it to you all day long it's cheaper for me to be honest with you pulling the cows off pasture and having them harvested saves me a stupid amount of work because that's an animal i don't have to feed for two months and pick up its poop i mean okay okay but at the same time um, what my reputation that i want over the next you know five ten years is i want to be known as having the best certainly the best beef on the kenai and eventually the best beef in the state that's my goal and i'm not going to get there by having customers that buy grass finished and taste it and go what is this garbage when they wanted something that they're more used to eating okay so it's that just makes- important okay that makes perfect sense um and the next one kind of leads into this um don't be afraid to ask questions of your rancher if you're going to spend a lot of money on beef, you should have all your questions answered. Common questions are, how was the animal treated? How and what was it fed? Were any vaccines or other medications used during the life of the animal? What conditions did the animals live in? Um, if those things matter to you, better yet, go see. And I know that you've opened up your farm uh, once you did like a, a farm tour Um and I, I think that's super important to to do that. But um, part of buying local beef and maybe paying more for it is to make sure you're getting the very best quality food there is. That Again, that kind of speaks for itself. But did you have anything to add? No, um, it just goes in. No, not really. It just goes into that that, that whole animal welfare thing, though. I, I can tell you that I, I've unfortunately been to a number of farms in this state that um, were a little bit horrifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I wasn't leaving without those animals. 
So I, I ended up overpaying for some animals over my course as a rancher because I, I just wasn't going to leave those animals in that condition. You know, and these are people that are selling this as meat. And I thought this is no better than, you know, garbage I might buy in a supermarket that I don't know where it comes from. So um, I know there's a million different ways to ranch. And I understand that I've got more financial resources than some people. And I'm not trying to sound too sanctimonious, but I think that if you're going to raise animals, you at least need to give them a clean, humane environment. And not everyone does a, a very good job of that, in my opinion, just from what I've seen. You know, I've had to move garbage and dead animals and things out of the way sometimes to get to load a cow in a trailer. And it's just, you know, just, just filth. And, uh, I'm very proud of my farm and my one of the things that I always my customers to do because I don't ask for deposits. Most most ranchers want a deposit. I don't want a deposit. What I want is I want my customers to the extent that they're able to, I want them to come to my ranch. I want them to shake my hand and I want them to see what I'm doing here because I find that those people follow through because my animals are, you know, I love them, you know, and they're cared for every day and they most of them unfortunately have names you know, makes it harder at the end, but they're scratched and they're cleaned up and they're every day we're giving them what they need, you know? Yeah. So ask those questions. If it's important to you, if you're really going to spend the top, the top dollar on top quality food, don't just assume that the rancher um, is doing the right thing. Most of them are. And I, and, and I know how hard my fellow farmers and ranchers work, but sometimes it's not as nice as you would expect. If you're going to pay that kind of money for food, just know what you're getting, just know what you're getting. You know, just be comfortable with, 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 with how your food is being treated. Yeah. So, okay. and that, and every one of these kind of leads into the next question. So now the next um, point was if buying Alaska grown really matters to you, ask where the animal was born. One common technique used by Alaskan ranchers is to import steers from Alberta and finish growing them here for the summer. And I'll just let you kind of fill that in. Cause you kind of said a lot there, which was important, but I think it might be better if you verbalize it. Well, <clears throat> I'm a cow calf operator here, which financially is not that smart. It's, 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 I was just telling a customer this morning before this meeting that with this last year with the hay prices, um, by the time I get a calf on the ground here in the next few weeks, just in feed. Okay. And that's with me using all of those alternative feeds that we talked about and more, we didn't even discuss and me buying in bulk because I had that ability to do that. Just in feed, by the time I get a calf on the ground this year, that calf, that day-old calf will have cost me almost $1,700 just in feed. That's nothing for diesel, the tractor, my time, the bull, fencing, taxes, the barns, infrastructure, overhead, nothing. So, you know, that's, that, that, that calf is really worth well over $2,000. I can right now go to Alberta and buy a 600 pound animal and have it trucked up here for less than that, you know, 600 pound animal, it's already a year old. So, you know, that's, that's what a lot of people do. And, and, and quite frankly, you know, there's nothing wrong with that because from a financial point of view, it's much smarter. And, and, and I may or may not do that. I'm not going to lie to you just to make some money for the farm. Cause it's awfully hard to be make money as a, as a cow calf producer. The problem is if the state doesn't have any cow calf producers, then we have no true food security. Because if for any reason those steers can't come north, you know, like what happened with COVID or, you know, there's a war or there's a whatever. I mean, whatever happens in the world, you know, aliens invade or Yellowstone goes off or, you know, whatever. I mean, just a million things. Some may be more far-fetched than others. If we really want to have food security in Alaska, it means we have to grow the food from the beginning to the end, which means born here, raised here, eat Alaska food, everything here, not relying on the trucks and the ships arriving on time. So 
for, for most people, money's the most important issues. They want to save a few bucks. I get that. But if you, if that issue crosses your mind at all, you know, I'm hoping there's at least some people, some consumers in this state, this is what I'm banking on that say, wait a second here. You know, I want to truly support the local sustainable farm. And even if it costs me an extra $500 to buy this steer, I'm going to do that because that's an important value to me. And I want to put my money where my mouth is. And we'll see if that works. You know, <laughs> well, yeah. well, I hope it works for you. There really does seem to be quite the movement towards um, creating sustainability. And and we do all have to have some skin in the game. In the end, it's it's we can't it's not an autonomous thing. There's not one certain farmer or two. You know, we can't have one vegetable farmer and one beef farmer and one pig farmer, you know, doing it all. And it requires us kind of putting our money where our mouth is literally. Um, yeah. Okay. So if you're buying finished beef, that is other than grass, ask the rancher what's going to, what, ask what the rancher is going to finish it on. This is a big one. Um, many people, for example, like corn finished beef, but corn doesn't really grow in Alaska. And a lot of it is GMO, which can bother people. Doesn't matter where you sit on that fence. What matters is that you have the knowledge. If you want, if you do not want your animals fed with genetically modified corn, then you have to specifically ask that question. I think that's mm -hmm. super important. Um, and it's not, it doesn't, if it's not important, then that's fine. But if it is important, you have to ask the question. It's a huge investment and it's such a bummer um, if you don't um, make sure that you're informed. So yeah, I think, I think the takeaway lesson here in the, of this hour long discussion is, is, is simply this. The, one of the big points of local food, in my opinion, is is to really know your farmer, know your food. And beef is a very big investment. You're talking about, you know, a five, six thousand dollar investment. Just be aware of the questions to ask and ask them. Get what you pay for. I'm not the only rancher in this state. There's lots of there's well, I'm not going to say lots of others, but there are others. And you have options. Right. If you want grass finished or you want, you know, something grain finished on corn or you want, you know, my you want my beets and Delta barley. I mean, that's the whole point is you should have those options. But you got to ask the questions to make sure that that animal fits with not just your budget, because it's not all about money, but also your values. You know, what are you really trying to do here and what is it, what is important to you? You know, one of the things that comes up a lot for me, for example, is vaccines. Um, mo all commercial cattle are from the day they're born are usually injected with a lot of vaccines and now they're using mRNA vaccines in cattle. And I'm not going to go into whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, but one of the questions people ask me a lot is, do you use vaccines? And I personally don't. The vets are always breaking my ass about that, to be honest with you, because I refuse to vaccinate my cattle. But I believe that cattle need sunshine and a clean environment and clean water and clean food to be healthy, not vaccines. So one of the options that consumers have is, to buy my cattle, which is as close to wild game as I can get it, that has zero medication and zero vaccines in it ever. Some people care about that. Some people don't. But if you do care about it, you don't have very many options because not many commercial people on my scale are going to refuse to vaccinate because I'm taking the risk of disease and I have to work extra, 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 extra hard every day to make sure that my cattle are healthy because they can't wallow in their own filth. They can't have a bad living environment, any of those things, because that's there's going to be disease. So I hustle my butt to make sure that they have that great environment so I don't have to use vaccines. So that's my own personal uh, ethics. And maybe that fits with yours and maybe it doesn't. But the point of all this is you have a choice. 
and use your choice, use your dollars. You can change the world with your dollars. Your food choices make such a huge difference, such a huge difference. If you're going to buy commercially raised hogs that are chained by their snout in a cage and they can't even turn around, then that's what you're supporting. You know, if on the other hand, you want to support a farmer that's using hogs to clear land and gets they get to have a wallow and be in the sunshine and, you know, have a, a great life, then that's what you're supporting. So don't be cruel with your dollars and don't be ignorant with your dollars. I think that sums it up, Ben. I think that um, this has been a great interview. I know we went just a little long, but I appreciate you taking the time to kind of really dig a little deeper um, because we want to make sure that, you know, it's just, it's, it's having the information out there for Alaskans that I think is really, really important. So I really appreciate the time. Um, And so we can find you on Facebook. We can find you. Are you on Instagram? I didn't, I didn't look actually. No, but my wife is, and she works, you know, just as hard as I do around here, around here. And she's got, she's got an Instagram page that she's a way better photographer than I am. And she's, she's, she takes a lot of photos of, of things. And so, you know, to be honest with you, social media is something I I work too hard as a farmer to market, which is a big problem. That's another that's another topic. I got to sell all this stuff I'm growing. But um, I'm, I'm on Facebook and I do have a YouTube channel, 40 percent farm and ranch. And what I did on that was it's it's uh, I've been chronicling the whole adventures of me as a farmer. So the very first video is me standing there two years ago in February saying, hey, I just bought all this land and I think I'm going to be a farmer and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, about 700 videos have been posted there. Some of which are going to be more interesting than others. I'm sure to people, but that's been my whole chronicle of how do we build a barn? Where do I get cattle? How do I feed cattle? Hey, here's my first batch of piglets. Hey, here's chicks. Uh, you know, Hey, we're going to do apple trees. Hey, here's our vegetable garden here. All of that is on there as well. So if anybody finds that interesting, you know, you can watch my successes and failures uh, plenty of failures. Um, but yeah, for the most part, people can call me, you know, if they, if they haven't, and I'm always happy to, to the extent possible help out too. you know, to the extent that my little bit of knowledge, if there's people that need something, they can, I, I love chatting to fellow farmers about how we can all do better. And, okay. uh, you know, people can call me and just, or text me and, you know, we'll, we'll talk about whatever we can. That sounds perfect. So I'll put all that in, I'll find all the links to everything and I'll put all that in the show notes. Um, so people can find you easily. So that'll be great. Um, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been, it's been really informative and I know we definitely are hoping to make it down to the Kenai this summer and we'd love to, we'd love to check out your farm. So. um, And I'm going to be doing another farm tour in May for the community as well. So I'll, I'll post that on Facebook and I'm sure you'll see it. Ooh, awesome. I love it. Okay. All right. Um, I appreciate your time and, um, yeah, I, I hope that this has been helpful.